Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then he, then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Father, we come before you in the mighty, precious name of our Savior Jesus. Lord, none of us are worthy to open this book. We read about another book in the book of Revelation that only the Lamb of God is worthy to open and break its seals. And Lord, this is another book that we are we're unworthy. We're, we're so grateful that you would condescend to give us a book, a revelation of yourself. The Lord, you would t- tell us who you are and you could tell us how we might be reclaimed and restored and redeemed from our fallen condition. And Lord, I pray that you would open up the message of this book to our hearts today and may we hear it like we have never heard it before and may it thrill us like it's never thrilled us before. In Jesus' name, amen. In the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, we have the account 
of a perfect God in a perfect world. There we find God creating the heavens and the earth in six days. And as part of his crowning act of creation, he creates man and woman. And he makes them in his own image and in his own likeness. And he gives the man and the woman dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds that fly in the air and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And he tells him to rule over them and to subdue them. And at the end of that chapter, God looked on everything that he had made and behold, he saw that it was all very good. And everything remains very good until we get to chapter 3. And then something catastrophic takes place. Man dares to hold up his fist to God and rebel against his almighty sovereign. And when sin enters the world, everything changes. Man's holiness changes to depravity. The paradise changes into a cursed creation. Life is transformed into death. And man's dominion now becomes bondage, both to Satan and to sin. And whenever we see some great catastrophe in nature, like there's a hurricane or a tornado, or maybe it's a war, we talk about the aftermath of that thing. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about the aftermath of sin. What were the results of this great cataclysmic, catastrophic rebellion against the Most High God? What took place afterwards? And so there's two questions that we're going to ask this morning. Number one, what did man do after he sinned? Number two, what did God do after they sinned? So first of all, what did man do after he sinned? Let's take a look in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And we're going to see that man did four things. Man discovered himself, man covered himself, man hid himself, and man excused himself. First of all, he discovered himself. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. We'll stop there. The eyes of both of them were opened. Now, what eyes are being spoken of here? It's not their physical eyes, is it? Because the Eve looked on the, the fruit of the tree, and she saw that it was good. She could see. And when the woman was brought to the man, the man could see because he was very excited to have a wife. They could see the fruit. They could see the animals. They had physical eyes. So that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the eyes of their understanding, and more specifically, the eyes of their consciences. For the first time in history, man has a conscience that's being awakened. It's being awakened for the very first time. Now, a conscience is that thing that God puts within the, the being. It's the faculty within every human being by which he can tell right from wrong. And that's why you can go to any people on the face of the earth, and they basically know right from wrong. They may not, well, they won't live up to what they believe to be right, but they know what is right, and they know when they've done wrong. They know that murder is wrong. They know that adultery is wrong. They know that lying and stealing are wrong. In fact, over in the book of Romans, Paul is talking about the Gentiles who didn't have the law. And in Romans 2.14, he says, When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So here the Gentiles have a conscience. And when they do one thing, 
their conscience accuses them. When they do another, their conscience defends them. It's the monitor within them that tells them if they're doing what is right or what is wrong. Well, that's what we have here. The eyes of their consciences are being opened. And the next verse says, and they knew that they were naked. Now, what an interesting statement. Didn't they know that they were naked before? Evidently not. In chapter 2, verse 25, it says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They walked around naked and had no self-consciousness of it. <coughs> Never occurred to them that they were naked. You see, shame always follows a guilty conscience. The eyes of their conscience is open. They know that they've sinned. They know they're guilty and they feel shame. And as a result of the sense of feeling shame, they tried to cover themselves because now they know that they're naked. And this is what takes place all over the world, isn't it? People's consciences are open to the fact that they've sinned against a holy God. And the very next thing that happens is that they start to feel a sense of of shame about what they've done. There's a sense of guilt within. And so man discovers who he is here. He discovers that he's fallen. But then next we find that they covered themselves. It says in the end of verse 7 that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Here is the very first attempt on the part of man to remedy his wretched condition. It was the first attempt, but it's not the last. Because all throughout history and, and today, if you look around the world, everyone is trying to do something to remedy their wretched condition. What did man do? Well, he knows that he's naked. He's got to do something. The nakedness shows his guilt and his shame before a holy God. So what does he do? He sews himself fig leaves and makes a covering, a loin covering. Evidently because he wants to hide his nakedness from God. Well, how well does that work? (laughs) Not. Not too good, does it? Because the very next thing he does is he runs and hides from God. If If these fig leaves hid himself from God, he wouldn't need to hide from God. So they're insufficient. And man's attempts to cover his sin before God are doomed to failure. They will never work. God sees right through man's attempts to cover himself. Our efforts to screen ourselves from a holy God will never be successful. In fact, the only thing that Jesus Christ ever cursed when he was on this earth was what? A fig tree. I think that is significant. I think God is telling us God curses man's efforts to try on his own to cover his own sin. That whole attempt is cursed. It'll never be successful. It'll never be effective. In fact, over in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, the Bible says, All of us have become like an unclean thing, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Are you familiar with what the literal Hebrew actually says there? All of our righteous deeds have become like a rag of a menstruous woman. That's the literal Hebrew. A used menstrual cloth. So it's a rag, a a used, dirty, polluted, filthy rag. That's how God sees what? Not just one of your righteous deeds, but all your righteous deeds put together don't amount to more than a filthy rag in the sight of God. And mankind today is still trying to cover himself with fig leaves, isn't he? 
He says, well, I'm a good person. How often do you hear that? If you ever witness and you tell people about Christ, and why do you expect to be accepted before God? Well, it's because I'm a good person. I keep the Ten Commandments. Not. Well, people think they do. I keep the golden rule. Uh, I pay my honest debts. I'm a good citizen. And man goes on and on and on. I'm a religious man. I go to church. But none of those things are any more than fig leaves that God is going to have to take off and replace with something else. And so man tries to cover his nakedness, tries to cover his shame. Today we find religious people the world over doing the same thing, don't we? Sowing themselves fig leaves. The devout Muslim will... His fig leaves are the fact that he gets down on a prayer cloth five times a day pointing toward Mecca and he prays to Allah, thinking that by that, God somehow is going to show favor to him. The Jew, his tactic is different. His fig leaves are that he tries to keep God's law, the holy law that God has given in the Old Testament. And he tries his hardest to keep that law. Getting a little bit of a ring. The, the Mormon... His fig leaves are totally different. He gets married in the temple. He pays his tithes. He abstains from soda, tea, and coffee. He tries to keep all the rules of the Mormon religion, and by that he thinks God will accept him. The Catholic has different fig leaves. Now, I can say this because I was a Catholic. I grew up Catholic, and I did what I'm about to say. We would go into that little box and confess our sins to the priest, and he would tell us, say, this many Hail Marys and this many Our Fathers, and do penance, and you're good to go. And so that's what we would do. Those were our fig leaves. But the Protestant, there's our, there are Protestants that sow fig leaves together too. They think that by their Bible reading, or their prayers, or their church attendance, or their baptism, or the many times they come to the communion table, that somehow that will be acceptable to God. Man's efforts somehow to appease a holy God, and none of them will be successful. None of them will work. All of them are doomed to failure. They're all fig leaves. So man discovered himself, then man covered himself, and the next thing we see is man hides himself. Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And rather than being excited about that and running to meet the Lord God and fellowshipping with the Lord God, it says, The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the field. They hide makes sense, doesn't it? Their conscience accuses them. They know instinctively, intuitively, that these fig leaves that they've sown really can't hide themselves from God. And so they do the next thing. They try to hide behind a tree. Maybe God won't see us here. But how futile is that? Imagine there's there's one being that none of us will ever be able to hide from, and that's God. Try your best. You can't hide from this being. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is light. There is no variation or shifting shadow in his presence. There is no hiding from this great God. But in their insanity, and that's what sin does, it makes us insane, in their insanity they think, well, maybe I can just hide myself and he won't see me. I'll just duck behind this apple tree here. God won't see. So they discovered themselves, then they covered themselves, then they hid themselves, and then fourthly, they excused themselves. 
God comes to them in verse 11 and says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Have you ever gone to break up a a fight amongst little kids? You said, Hey, what's going on here? He did it! No, he did it! It's the same thing that's happening here. Everyone's passing the buck. Nobody wants to take responsibility for what they've done. The man says, it's the serpent, or I'm sorry, it's the woman. But really, it's not just the woman. It's the woman you gave me. So he blames not only the woman, he actually is blaming God. God, it's your fault. You gave me this woman. (laughs) And the woman turns around and says, no, Lord, it wasn't me. It was that serpent over there. He's the one that deceived me, and I ate. And no one wants to take personal responsibility for their actions. And it's the same today, isn't it? We're, we have this inborn aversion to coming clean. It, it, and, and, and it takes time and it takes the grace of God to root that out of us, to make us humble men who are willing to accept the responsibility for our sins. And, and I confess that's true about me. It's a lot easier for me to justify that myself than to humble myself and say, this is what I've done and it's wrong. But I expect it's also the same for you. I'm not alone here. We're we're born with Adam and Eve's tendency to just pass the buck. So here we find the man discovering himself, then trying to cover himself. That doesn't work, so he hides himself. And then he just excuses himself. wasn't his problem. It's someone else's problem. Now what does God do after man's sin? We've seen man's vain attempts. What does God do? Well, God first calls the man and the woman. Notice verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam, where are you? Now, is this because Adam or God didn't know? No. No. God wasn't asking because he needed some information. God was asking because he wants a confession from the man and the woman. He wants them to come clean. Adam, where are you? Have you eaten from the fruit of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What's going on here, Adam? God is probing. God is wanting them to come clean and say, Lord, I'm, I'm so sorry. You're right. I, I did exactly the thing you commanded me not to do. Can you ever find a way to bring forgiveness to me? Can you show mercy to me, Lord? But of course, that's not what takes place. So God comes and he calls them. And this is an act of grace on the part of God. God could have been within his rights to have killed them on the spot. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Instead of receiving physical death at that particular day, God calls them. And the reason is because God wants fellowship with them. They're out of fellowship. They're separated from him through sin. God is calling because he's wanting them to come back into fellowship with himself. Secondly, God confronts them. Verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Now, no one had told them that they were naked. They instinctively knew it because of the shame of their sin. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, God comes to them and he calls to the man and says, Where are you? And the man says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. 
But Adam's not coming clean yet, is he? There's no confession. And so God probes a little bit deeper. He calls him first, and now he confronts him directly. Have you eaten from that tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And you know, God in his grace calls people today. He calls them through his gospel. There is a gospel call. That's what happens on Sunday mornings here. Practically every Sunday, there is a... I'm not talking about an invitation to come to the front and raise your hand or anything like that. I'm talking about a gospel call, come to Christ and be saved. And God is issuing that call through people again and again and again. He says in Ezekiel 18, Why will you die, O house of Israel? Rather that you would turn unto me and live. Turn ye, turn ye, that you might not die. So there's a gospel call, but not only does God issue a call, then he will confront In fact, Jesus talked in John 16 about the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. He says that the Holy Spirit will be sent into the world to convict it of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin, because what? Because they do not believe in me. It appears from these words of Jesus that one of the greatest sins that we can commit is unbelief. The Holy Spirit will convict people of sin because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. The sin of unbelief. The sin of trusting in themselves rather than in trusting in Jesus Christ. The very first commandment of the Ten Commandments was, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that's exactly what people do when they don't trust in Christ. Their God is themselves. They worship and serve themselves. They believe in themselves. They believe in their own efforts and their own works. And the sin that the Holy Spirit puts his finger on is that you have been trusting yourself. You have been dethroning God. You have had other gods before the true and living God. Bow down and repent and repent of that idolatry and receive the true and living God as your Lord and your God and your Savior. So the Holy Spirit, through his convicting work, confronts people of their sin. He goes deeper than just calling. He gets inside and begins to show them their shame and their guilt. And their consciences accuse them before God. But God goes further than that. He calls, he confronts, and then he chastises. Because starting in verse 14, he begins to bring curses upon the ground and upon the serpent. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. We're going to take a look at that next Sunday. Verse 15. The very first message of the gospel ever preached was here in Genesis 3.15. But here we find God bringing a curse upon the serpent. Verse 16. Now he directs himself to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now here we find what the woman is specifically oriented towards. What's her natural orientation? Bearing children and her husband. Yet she will be frustrated in bearing and raising children, and she'll be frustrated in her relationship to her husband. Frustrated in bearing children because she's going to have great pain in the act of childbirth, 
and frustrated in her relationship to her husband because her desire will be for her husband, but instead her husband will rule over her. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be tension in the relationship. But not only is that true, but there's going to be frustration when it comes to what the man is oriented towards. Look at verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. What had God commanded Adam to do at this point? Yes, to cultivate and keep the garden. That was his special task that God had given him. God now says, that thing that I especially called you to and that you're oriented towards naturally, work, it's going to be frustrating for you. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the woman is naturally oriented towards children and her husband, towards family. The man is naturally oriented towards work, challenge, a goal, accomplishing something. Now you can see why there is going to be frustration between the husband and the wife. There's two different natural orientations for each one of them. And the man is also frustrated when it comes to what he's naturally oriented towards. He's going to have to work and work hard in order to make a living. He's going to have to sweat. Evidently, before this time, it was very easy. You just go out and pick your morning vegetables and fruit and enjoyed the day, and it was just a piece of cake. Not so anymore. Sweat, labor, hard work, thorns and thistles. So God brings chastisement upon the woman, and he brings chastisement upon the man. Now, I also think this is an act of grace. It was an act of grace for God to call them. It was an act of grace for him to confront them. But I think it's also an act of grace for him to bring these curses. Why? Well, let's say it wasn't frustrating for the woman in her sphere of influence, in raising, in birthing and raising children and her relationship to her husband. Let's say that she found just joy and satisfaction and life out of those relationships, what's going to happen? She's not going to look to God. She has no need for God. She's going to fix all of her attention and focus upon her children and her family. And they're going to become her God. And she's going to forget all about her maker. What's going to happen to the man if he finds total fulfillment in his work? Same thing. He's going to neglect his maker. He's going to find all of his joy and satisfaction in his work So God intentionally frustrates the spheres that the man and the woman are both naturally oriented towards because he wants them, and he wants their fellowship, and he doesn't want them to to make this world utopia and paradise. He wants himself to be their utopia and their paradise. And it was an act of grace so that they would look to him to find fulfillment and life and joy and satisfaction in their maker and not in anything of this world. But then the final thing that God does after man sins is that he clothes them. Verse 21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Here we find God solving their problem. 
The man and the woman had lost their righteousness and they could never get it back through any efforts of their own ever again. If they were ever to be made righteous again, someone else was going to have to step in and provide that righteousness because they've lost it. They've forfeited it forever. And so they've got a big problem. Now, Adam thought his problem was Eve. Eve thought her problem was the serpent, but they're both wrong. Adam's problem wasn't really Eve. Eve's problem really wasn't the serpent. Both of their problem was God. They had a God problem. And how do you solve a God problem? There's only one being that can solve a God problem, and that's God. Only God can solve God. You see, the righteousness that God required could only be provided by that same God. The God that they were running from and hiding from was the God that they needed to run to and hide in. Only God could solve the God problem. And so what we have in Scripture is the gospel that tells us that God has solved the God problem. How does he do it? God becomes a man. God is manifested in the flesh. Do you ever wonder, why did God have to become a human being? Because God is the only one that can solve the problem. So God has to step into Adam's world. Adam forfeited eternal life. Adam forfeited paradise. Someone else has got to come in in the form of a man and gain it back, to gain back the paradise that man had originally lost. And so Jesus is God's answer to the God problem. He's God in human flesh who comes to suffer and die for those who have lost everything through their deliberate rebellion against him. So here comes the God solution. Notice also in verse 21 that God did everything for the man and the woman. It says in verse 21, The Lord God made garments of skin. Adam and Eve aren't sewing these garments. God is the one who's making them. And in fact, God doesn't make them and give them to the man and the woman and say, Hey, put them on now. It says that God clothed them. He made them and then he put them on. He did everything. It reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son when the parable has been off in that far country. He's squandered everything. He's on his way home. He's probably looking down, dejected, thinking, my dad's never going to ever accept me. What am I going to do? I'm, I'm going to have to become a servant. And he, he's, he's dejected. His face is hanging low. He's walking back home. And the father lifts up his eyes and sees him a long way off. And the Bible says the father ran. Folks, fathers didn't run in first century times. This father ran. And he fell on his neck and he wept. The literal Greek says he wept over and over and he embraced him over and over. And he says, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. He didn't say to the slaves, bring out the best robe and have him put it on himself. No, put it on him. Put the shoes on his feet and the ring on his finger and kill the fatted calf. And this is what God does for us in the gospel. He not only provides righteousness, but he clothes us with that same righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 61, we have Isaiah's account of this. Isaiah 61.10 I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. You see, that 
original garment of fig leaves represents man's self-righteousness, but this garment of skin represents God's own righteousness that he wraps over us. And of course, what is that garment of righteousness? It's Christ. If a man is in Christ, he's clothed with Christ. Christ becomes his righteousness. He becomes his redemption, his wisdom, his salvation. He becomes his all in all. So here God comes. God solves the problem himself. God does everything for him. And then we find that God does what was absolutely essential. See, God could never have fellowship with Adam and Eve ever again unless something had been done to clothe them properly, to cover their sin, to to hide it from view, to put it away. Their efforts could never do it, so God steps in and He does what is necessary in order to put away sin. And He clothes them properly with these garments. And everyone in the world today is either clothed with fig leaves or fur coats. Either their own righteousness or God's. Everyone, everyone, every last member of the human race, I don't care who it is, everybody in this room, everyone in Rancho Cordova, everyone on this planet. And unless they are clothed with that righteousness of God's provision, they will perish. That is the simple truth. Because their sins are not atoned for, their sins are not covered, their sins are not put away, they are going to stand before God in all of their sin and they will be damned to hell. That's why this righteous covering is essential. It's not optional. It's like, well, if you, might, if you get around to it one day, maybe you can find God's answer of righteousness. I think I'll still be okay because I'm a pretty good guy. No, it doesn't work that way. Either you are in Christ and righteous in Christ, or you are in sin and damned forever. Do you remember that parable where Jesus talks about the wedding? The wedding feast and somebody comes in without the proper wedding clothes, and the king says, how did you get in here without the proper wedding clothes? He said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, and cast him into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Folks, if you stand before God without the proper wedding clothes, which is the garments of God's own providing, the righteousness of his son, you will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christ is the only righteousness whereby we can appear before a holy God and survive. John Bunyan in his book Pilgrim's Progress said, There is a gate to hell from the very gate of heaven. People will be standing before God in their own righteousness and they're going to find one of those those shoots down into hell. They think, they're pounding on heaven's door thinking God's going to open it up to them and instead they're going to find themselves damned. God will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So here we have the absolute essential nature of this covering. Finally, we find that that this covering required blood sacrifice because it was animals. Animals had to die. The blood of those animals had to be shed in order for a man to have his guilty soul covered and that he could be accepted again before God. The innocent animal dies so that the guilty man could be accepted again. Of course, all of that points to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, doesn't it? Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Christ also died for sins. 
the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All of these passages teach us that the righteous one must take the place of the unrighteous. There's a substitution taking place. There's a transference taking place. Christ is righteous, but he's hanging on the cross we should have gone to. We're guilty and undone and wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. But yet we receive the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of that one hanging on the cross is put to our account and our guilt and shame is put to his account so that we might be covered by his blood and by his righteousness forever. Let me just ask you some questions this morning. Are your clothes homemade or God-made? Have you made them? What is your confidence in this morning? Is it in Christ or yourself? Can you save yourself? Or do you need to be saved by another? Do you expect salvation by doing or by something done? Is your salvation a work of man for God or a work of God for man? That old hymn said, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The answer is Christ. The answer is his shed blood, his sacrificial death, his bodily resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God, his intercession on our behalf. The answer is Jesus this morning. He's the hero of my story. It's not Adam and Eve, and it's not even these animals. It's the merciful God who provides Christ for the guilty. Think with me about that parable for a moment of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two men went up to the temple to pray. A Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself, lifted his eyes to heaven and prayed to himself, interestingly, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not unjust. I'm not a swindler. I'm not an adulterer. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. And I'm not certainly like this tax collector over there. He's wearing fig leaves. He thinks that he's righteous in the sight of God, but his righteousness is all self-induced. It's self-righteousness. And the tax collector was some distance away from that holy man over there. He didn't feel worthy to even stand next to this Pharisee. He's a great distance off. He won't lift his eyes to heaven because he knows that he's undone. He smites his breast because that's the source of all of his wretchedness, his own evil heart. And he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said, that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Justified means he was righteousized. He was declared righteous by a holy God. Jesus, I think, loves to take the person who would never think would be the one and make them the hero of the story. The tax collector becomes the one who receives the mercy rather than the Pharisee. The the Pharisee is wearing fig leaves. The tax collector has this garment of skin. He's covered with God's own righteousness. 
Paul says in Philippians 3.9 that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, that which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now Paul says, I want to be in Christ. And if I'm in Christ, I'm not going to have a righteousness of my own that I'm depending on. I'm going to have his. It comes from God and it's received on the basis of faith. So what's the message that we give sinners? It's simply this. You know, a sinner says, well, how can I get this righteousness? How can I be covered so that I'll never be damned? How can I get rid of my fig leaves and have his provision? What do we tell them? We tell them, stop trusting yourself and start trusting Jesus. It's really that simple. It really is. Stop trusting yourself and start trusting Jesus wholly and entirely for all your salvation. That's our answer. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. The Bible says in Titus 3.5, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It's the mercy of God simply received through faith. And that's what we tell people. You're trusting in the wrong thing. You've been putting on fig leaves. Now, either we've got religious or irreligious people. Religious people put on fig leaves. Irreligious people don't even care. To irreligious people, we show them their sin. To religious people, we show them their sin. The religious person needs to be shown he's trusting in the wrong thing. The irreligious person needs to be shown that he has rebelled against a holy God and is totally going the wrong direction. But the answer to both of them is the same thing. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But I realize this morning I'm talking to saints. I'm not talking to sinners. So what does this mean for you? It means that you ought to marvel. You ought to be just stupefied. (laughs) You ought to be blown away that the God that you've sinned against has provided a righteous covering for you. Now, we have sinned that right away. We don't have any right to a covering. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death should be our portion, folks. Not a covering. What's going on here? How can God do this? God is love. That's what's going on here. As Sean was telling us originally, our God doesn't just manifest love. He is love. And the way He has chosen to demonstrate that love is by providing covering for guilty, undone, wretched sinners headed for destruction. That ought to cause us to marvel. What what is this righteousness all about that we're talking about? Two things. It is perfect and it is eternal. Number one, it's perfect. You can't improve upon it. You will never be any more righteous before a holy God than you are right now. You can never be any more righteous. Because whose righteousness are you covered with? Christ's. He was perfect. He never sinned. He always did what pleased the Father. His righteous deeds are put to your account. You can't get any better than that. You can't improve upon that. The very day that you trusted in Christ, when you were still full on in sin, 
Over in Romans chapter 4, it says that God justifies the ungodly. The moment you trusted Christ in all of your sin, you were as righteous as you could ever be in the sight of a holy God. So it's a perfect righteousness, but it's also an eternal righteousness. I believe that the Bible very clearly says that once you are justified, you can never be unjustified. You will be justified for all eternity. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Everyone he justifies, he glorifies. So your justification, your covering, your garments this morning are perfect and they are eternal. And that ought to simply blow us away with gratitude and stir our hearts to worship. This is what we call the doctrine of justification by faith. Luther said, it is the article upon which the church stands or falls. If a church does not understand and believe this, what we've been talking about this morning, that church doesn't deserve to be in existence. We must have this right. We can get a lot of things wrong, folks. But if we get this wrong, we're undone. We don't understand the gospel. We don't understand the main message of this book. We're still in our sins. May God just give us a sense of of wonder today at his love and his mercy. In Jesus' name. And Lord, we do ask for you to fill us again with joy and worship, especially as we prepare our hearts to take of the bread and the cup. Lord, may we just be filled with love to you in response to your initiating love towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.